Second Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse number 1. Paul's there with Timothy and, uh, and Silas as they're writing to this church at Thessalonica, and he says this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there, uh, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you'd help us this morning as we look to your word. No doubt this, uh, uh, really this whole chapter and uh, even this book of the Bible is, a, is, a, um, is much debate and, uh, and uh, division and different uh, opinions on, uh, on the content of it. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us and guide us as we uh, unpack it, that we would be biblical, that we would be sound in our understanding. May your Holy Spirit guide and direct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Beware of Deception. Beware of deception, as Paul, of course, is uh, warning and, con and concerned with this church. Now, if you remember, um, this is a very young church, uh, First uh, or Thessalonica. Paul was there for a very short time, was run out of town. This church got started. He was very concerned about the state of this church because day one, they were met with persecution. And they had endured a lot of persecution and suffering, as he talked about in First Thessalonians, and, uh, and even in Second Thessalonians here. And so he's very concerned about them. So while Paul was in Athens and he's on his way to Corinth, he sends Timothy to go back and check on the state of this church. While he's in Corinth, Timothy comes back to him and says, uh, this church is very healthy. They're very strong, but there are some concerns. So some of those concerns he addressed in first, in fact, a lot of the concerns he addressed in 1 Thessalonians. And a lot of those was about maybe the, about the rapture. Uh, and he, you know, they're, they're asking, well, what about those who have died already? Are they going to experience it? Are they going to miss it? So he explains to them, no, no, they're actually going to get a head start, right? They're going to go before those of us who are alive and remain. Then we will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall be with the Lord. And he talks about that. And, and so by the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, which was written just a few months after, um, there are some things that they've listened to. The implication, I, I believe, uh, Paul could be referencing an actual person that came to this church, possibly an imposter, saying, I have a letter from Paul. We don't know for sure, but he kind of gives some implication. Hey, if someone by the Spirit or by word or by letter from us says something to you, don't listen to him. And, uh, and so, you know, Paul is saying, by the way, something that we need to understand as Bible believers, that God's, uh, that scriptures are never going to contradict. So Paul says, I've told you some things. If a letter from me says something different, don't believe it. And uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But they've, uh, they, they, they've kind of bought into some things. There's some great concern that they have actually entered the tribulation. They've entered the day of the Lord. And, um, and he says, no, no, there's going to be some things that have to take place before that happens. right? Uh, now there may be, uh, keep this in mind, believers, there may be some tribulations that you and I will endure but we will miss the great tribulation, okay? And uh, I want to just kind of unpack that a little bit. So, but, uh, but, but in this portion, I, I was going to do the whole chapter, but as I started diving into it, I thought, you know, I better break this thing up or we're going to be here all day. And uh, we still might be with, you know, four or five verses. But uh, uh, there's so much in this, but I don't want to miss it because uh, this portion of Scripture actually talks more about the Antichrist than any one play, passage of Scripture or any one area of Scripture, including Revelation, um, uh, as he's going to talk about that. So we'll introduce a little bit of the Antichrist, but we'll pick up on that next week and go a little deeper as the passage continues. But, uh, but really in here, he's sharing the importance of being steadfast amidst deception and false teaching. There's a great warning that, hey, listen, there are going to be some false teachers. There's going to be some things going on. You need to be secure. You need to be steadfast in what you believe and what you understand. And, uh, you know, it's really it's a timely reminder for us to stand firm in truth, especially in a day where, where really truth has become relative, right? Uh, the, the mantra of today, there is no absolute truth. 
Truth is relative. You can have your truth and I can have my truth, and both truths can be right, even though they oppose, which violates the law of contradiction. Uh, two things that are different cannot be the same or cannot both be truth. And um, I have an article here that I want to share with you real quick. Um, uh, this new survey reveals that most Americans and many who identify as Christians no longer believe in absolute moral truth. What is truth? Where do we find it? Past generations have looked to a source outside themselves, namely God and the Bible, for determining morality and truth. But a new study from Cultural Research Center um, at Arizona Christian University shows that some 58% of Americans surveyed no longer believe that, that and instead say it is up to the individual to decide what is true and moral. The American Worldview uh, Inventory 2020 concluded that belief in absolute moral truth rooted in God's word is rapidly eroding among all American adults, whether churched or unchurched, within every political segment, within every age group. Shockingly, that does not include American, um, that does include American Christians, those who have historically pointed to the Bible as the source of absolute truth and the guide to how we should live our lives. The study found that evangelicals uh, defined as those believing the Bible to be true, reliable, and the Word of God, amazingly, are also as likely to reject absolute moral truth, 46%, as to, the, as to, accept, uh, as to accept it, 48%. Only 43% of those surveyed who identify as born-again Christians still embrace absolute truth. Get that now. 43% of those that claim to be Christian uh, say that there is an absolute truth. All right? And think about this now. We're banking our eternity off of the Word of God being true and absolute. Um, those who, decide, who, with a decidedly biblical worldview, were two and a half times more likely than other people to say that God is the basis of truth. In fact, uh, in fact those surveyed, uh, nearly nine out of ten adults, 85%, who have a biblical worldview reject the idea that moral absolutes do not exist, and therefore people must create their own moral standards. Uh, so, you know, which, which kind of leads to the question, where are Americans looking for truth? Survey found that most common uh, notion is that God is the base of truth, 42%. Uh, another four out of ten believe that e uh, either, uh, excuse me, that uh, there's a weird way this is worded here, um, uh, about an inner certainty uh, or scientific proof, 15%, traditional, 5% or traditions, or a public consensus, 4%, uh, by the means is means of knowing truth. In other words, what is popular? Among Christians, just half identify God as the basis of truth. Think about that now. I'm not going to go through the whole article, but uh, but just an idea of kind of, kind of where we're at today, that the church is actually paralleling the world when it comes to that. Those numbers are almost identical as far as, as, far as you know, um, is there truth outside of us? So it all becomes uh, relative. It all becomes about, you know, what is your truth? And by the way, what's so interesting about that is how much people who deny absolute truth are trying to push their truth upon others. Think about that for a second. You are a bigot if you're holding to your truth and saying someone else has to be held by that standard. Namely, there is a God, and you'll stand before him. But they, you know, and, and we're bigoted and we're intolerant. Meanwhile, they, especially those with extreme views, you know, like love is love, uh, want us to accept their truth. Based on what? Well, it's based on their lust is what it's based on. Um, uh, I saw this thing. This, there's a guy who has a relationship with his car. And uh, it was so weird. This guy, he... He kisses his car every morning right on the on the hood, and he hugs it. And uh, and uh, you know he says, when I saw this car, I just had an instant connection with this car. And he said, I just don't know what would happen if I lost this car. And he starts crying, and he takes his glass off. He's like, excuse me. I was like, is this the acting, or is it like he was dead serious? He has a relationship with this car. We've heard stories of people, you know, they wanted to marry their pet, or you know, all this craziness. Well, what is truth? That's what Pilate asked Jesus. What is truth? Right. And so as believers, we need to understand that there is a source, there is a place that we turn to as absolute. And can I just tell you this? There is so important to understand the fact that God does not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm the Lord, I change not. And, uh, and God and His truth, listen, they don't change. And, and, and by the way, all we have to do is look through, uh, through, look through history and realize there have been times where societies have, uh, have gone different directions and gone different crazy paths. And, and listen, the end is always the same. 
that, you know, you think about the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire. What was going on in Rome when it fell? There was gro gross immorality uh, all over the place. There was political things that paralleled what we are seeing today. There was socialism. There was, uh, I want to say it was some 85% of the Roman Empire were dependent upon the government in some way. That sounds familiar, you see. And, um, um, and so, so we have to come back to this, that just because society is changing, just because you know, we think we're on to something new, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new enlightenment or anything. Uh, we're following these same patterns of man in his natural state left to his own understanding where those things lead to, right? So as believers, we can't be shaken by these things. We can't be moved, and uh, we can't be so easily swayed. So we must uh, make sure we're firm in what we believe and why we believe it. So first thing I want to look at is the urgency of not being easily shaken. Notice verse 1 again. Now we beseech you, brethren... Uh, we understand the word beseech you, it means to beg. And we, this is Paul and Timothy and Silas, as they're writing to this church. He says, we are begging you, our brothers. And then he, and then he gives like, you know, he, he many times when he says that he's going to beg about something or beseech by something, he's going to do it in a way that, um, uh, that, that uh, has some gravity to it. For example, Romans 12, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He puts some gravity to it by the very mercies of God. In fact, has God been merciful to you? If he has, then you need to do this thing I'm about to say. You see, here, here's the urgency. By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He told them in the last one, hey, the, he's coming soon. He's coming and we ought to be ready. And, and keep in mind, uh, before I dive into this, keep in mind the pivotal nature of the church of Thessalonica. We talked about where Thessalonica was. It was in the upper portion in the, Mediterranean, uh, in the Macedonian area, uh, a, a top part of the Aegean Sea. It was primarily converted Gentiles, unlike a lot of the other areas, which had a great base of Jews. Now, these were those that had a Jewish base, but they were converted Gentiles. They were, uh, they were, they were, they were Greeks that, that accepted Christ as the Messiah, but they, they had their start in the Jewish tradition. They were proselyte Jews. And, and, and they had from there had reached many, as we saw in First uh, Thessalonians, he says, uh, from you sounded out the word of the Lord. It sounded out. He says that we should uh, ha uh, have no need to tell and teach anybody. This is a very strong, this is going to be a very strong missions church. This was going to be a sending point. So it's no doubt that the devil would be attacking this church. He first attacked them by persecution. When persecution could not squash it out, uh, then, then, then what's he going to do? He's going to bring delusion. He's going to bring false teaching and error and apostasy. And let me just say, that's what the devil does. If he can discourage you in the flesh the, from the physical discomfort, that's the first and easiest place to go. But if you push through that, next place he's going is after your mind, your thinking, your doctrine, your theology. By the way, why is theology so important? These kinds of things. You see, so often it's like, well, you know, why, why do you get into all that? All that really matters is that we know Jesus. All that really matters is that we're saved, right? Folks, if that's all that really mattered, I promise you, the Bible would not be this thick. Okay, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. There's a profit to it. It's profitable for doctrine, for, 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 uh, correct, uh, for reproof, uh, for doctrine, for instruction, for correction. Thank you. Help me, Isaiah. Reproof. Correction, uh, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished and all good works. Thank you. Um, uh, that's all scripture. All scripture. We can't lose sight of that. And so, so, so as we look at that, he says, here's, here's the urgency of this at the by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. What's that a reference to? Our gathering together unto him. The rapture, we looked at that in 1 Thessalonians, right? That we'll be gathered together with him, caught up together with him. So there's two urgencies. The fact that as believers, we'll be caught up with the Lord, but also that the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is at hand. And so he says there's an urgency to this that we not be soon shaken. Verse 2, that you be not, so here's what he's begging them. He said the, the urgency of it, but verse 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind. The word there, shaken, is the description of like, like an earthquake, like being shaken, being so troubled. But here's what it says, in your mind. It's a contrast to being stable. It's a contrast to being firm and fixed. Don't be soon shaken in your mind or be troubled 
neither by spirit nor by word, by letter from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. So they were concerned. Uh, you know, he, he, um, Paul here, he's, he's reminding them of the previous teaching that he'd given this church, and they were concerned about the rapture, and they wondered if, in First Thessalonians, if they had missed that, if that had already happened, and he straightened them out on that. And then now they're concerned that maybe they are in the last days, the day of the Lord. And I want to just pause for a second and talk about this. Notice what it says in verse number 2, that the day of Christ is at hand. The day of Christ. What is the day of Christ, and is there a difference between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord? I'm going to give you my opinion. I'll give you what others say. Some people teach and believe that the day of the Lord is the tribulation, the judgment period. The day of Christ is when he comes and sets up his millennial kingdom. And I think there may be some evidence to support those, but I personally believe the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, are interchangeable. Uh, especially because this passage mentions the day of Christ, and it's clearly going to be talking about the tribulation that we're going to look at. Uh, there are others that are talking about, in a very positive sense, about hope and, and those kinds of things, and there is an element of that. There's two sides you can be on in the day of the Lord. There's two sides you can be on in the day of the Lord. And so that's very important to understand. But, uh, but the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, here's another a term. The day of wrath. Well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? So I'll tell you what I believe, and I'm going to share with you a few passages. I believe the day of the Lord is a period of time kicked off by the rapture, entering into the seven-year period known as the tribulation or the great tribulation, completing with... Christ setting up his, his millennial kingdom. There's a lot of stuff in there that I skipped over, but, but just for a brief timeline of what we're talking about, main, main events, rapture, tribulation, millennial kingdom. Okay, I believe that is all-encompassing day of the Lord. right? And uh, the end times, we might say, the end of all things, uh, what have you. Um, but that, that's, that's, that's what I personally believe it's referring to. Now, if you want to look it up, or I can give you a, um, a list, but there's about 88 references throughout the scriptures about this day of the Lord. I'm not going to read them all to you, but I'll read you a few. All right, Zephaniah 1, 14-18, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of, our, uh, of the Lord, that the mighty men shall cry there bitterly. Mighty men, strong men, they're going to be weeping at this day. The day of wrath, or this day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness and dis desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm. Now that's interesting. There's a lot of debate about the trumpet. When that trumpet blows, right? The Bible talks about the trumpet uh, of God calling uh, us up for the rapture. But there's also the trumpets of judgment. Here's the trumpet of alarm, right? If the watchman blows not the trumpet to warn the people, there's a trumpet of alarm. And it's very important to understand there's different types of trumpets with a different purpose, right? If the trumpet shall, shall give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? There are trumpet blasts that give a distinct sound of command, Right now, in our day and age, we don't use it anymore. We have radios, but back before radios, how do you get a message to all the people that are ready for war? You have certain trumpet sounds prepared for them. They're codes. They're signals. One trumpet means charge. One trumpet means retreat. One trumpet means you know whatever it is. And so, so here it says there's a trumpet, an alarm is what this trumpet is against the fenced cities and against the high towers, and I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, and he shall make even a speedy uh, riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Isaiah 30. By the way, ever wonder why we don't have a lot of sermons from Zephaniah? Um, Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, for he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. 
For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will <coughs> excuse me, I will punish the world for the their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Notice what he's saying there, the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy, I want you to catch this one. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Let me ask you this question real quick. When the Lord comes in the day of ba the battle of Armageddon takes place, when Jesus comes and he exercises vengeance and he makes war with all the nations, does everyone who is left on earth die? I see a couple people shaking their head no. No, not everybody dies. In fact, it even says in Matthew 24, except those days should be shut, uh, cut short for the elect's sake. No flesh shall be saved. So that means the days will be cut short so the people will be saved. Right? Uh, so, so here's what's interesting. So does that mean those that do not get destroyed during the tribulation, do they enter into the Lord's kingdom? Because what does he do immediately after Armageddon? He establishes his kingdom. There are going to be humans left in the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is, notice what it says in Isaiah, the last uh, verse that I read. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Talking about being destroyed for their evil and for their wickedness. Who is left when you get rid of the arrogant and the proud and the haughty? The humble and meek. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about the meek? Shall inherit the earth. It's funny how some people say, oh, if you're meek, then God's going to give you things. You're going to have this great inheritance. I know a lot of meek people that don't have a lot of stuff, and I know a lot of pride people, that, proud people that do have a lot of stuff. I mean, think about Donald Trump. Is he meek and lowly? But he has a lot of stuff. You see what I'm saying? I believe that Jesus is talking about the kingdom, by the way, in his Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about those Jews. What's he talking about? He's talking about this kind of stuff. The meek shall inherit. They're going to inherit the kingdom. They're going to inherit the earth. That's coming. And that's exactly what Isaiah said there. But just a side thought. That was free. Jeremiah 46, verse 10. For thus saith the Lord of the... Uh, excuse me. For this, for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be uh, uh, satiate, and made drunk with their blood. Now, uh, uh, for the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice, and the north country by the river Euphrates. So notice what it says there, there's going to be vengeance, a day to avenge his adversaries, and the sword shall devour. Now in Revelation, what is the sword? The sword proceeds out of Jesus' mouth. Yeah. Uh, the you know Whatever that is. Is this metaphorical? Is, I believe it is. I believe the same, the same mouth that said, let there be in Genesis 1, is the same mouth that's going to be destroying the nations as a double-edged sword. Job 20. 28 to 29. By the way, Job is the oldest book of the Bible, and here's what it says. The increase of his house shall depart, and his goods shall flow away in the day of his wrath. This is a portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. Job is an amazing person to study because there's really no theology that's written, that's been preserved for us, for Job to base the things he believed off of. Here, Job's talking about end-time judgment. Job also calls God his Redeemer. I know my Redeemer liveth. Where did Job get that information from? Job's a really unusual uh, book to study because uh, you have to ask yourself, where did this information come from? Um, Isaiah 2, <clears throat> verse 12. For the day the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud, and lofty, there it is again, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Isaiah 13, 4 through 6, the noise of the multitude in the mountains, like, uh, like that as a great people, a, tumult, uh, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together. And the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. And they come from a far country from the end of heaven, and the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. How ye... For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 27.1 In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, uh, shall, shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent. 
even Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Well, I don't have time to go there, but uh, that sounds a lot like Revelation. The sea, the beast coming out of the sea, uh, uh, a metaphorical phrase call, calling him Leviathan. Uh, now, does he look just like Leviathan, or is that a metaphor? There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of typology or pictures in Revelation. I can't say either way. Maybe the devil takes on the form of a dragon when he comes out of the sea, or that's just the symbolism. Either way, that's what Isaiah is calling him, and uh, and the Lord will destroy that dragon. All a part of the day of the Lord. Ezekiel 33 through 4. The day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. A cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. And the sword shall come upon Egypt, and great pain shall be in Ethiopia. And when the slain shall fall in Egypt, they shall take away their, her multitude, and her foundations shall be broken down. Joel 1.15, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand. And as the destruction from Almighty shall come, Joel 3.12-14, For the heathen shall be weakened, and shall come upon the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit in, to judge the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get ye down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near the valley of decision. That's an interesting passage to unpack there, but there is a decision to be made in the valley of decision. Zephaniah 3.8, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. That's P-R-E-Y, the prey the, the, for hunting. Uh, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdom. What's the what's the reason? That I may assemble the kingdom, to pour out uh, pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with a fi the fire of my jealousy. Amos five eighteen through twenty. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. He's saying, he's saying to them, you that are looking forward to the day of the Lord, woe unto you. Careful. To what end is it for you? Why are you desiring this? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear to meet him, or went into the house and leaned on his hand uh, on the wall and a serpent bite him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very darkness and not brightness in it? Revelation 6, 12 through 17. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black and a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell upon the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her uh, uh, her um, untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings... Uh, of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in dens and the uh, and in the rocks of the mountains and said unto the mountains and the rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb who's the lamb jesus the wrath of the lamb interesting word picture by the way are, are rams known for wrath this one is for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Romans 2.5 But after, there, after the, uh, thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Last one, I'll read Jeremiah 37 and 8. Alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. It is even a time of Jacob's trouble. By the way, Jesus referred to this day of tribulation as none like it. So we're talking about the same day. The time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Now, let me just say this. If you had all this as your premise for this day of the Lord, and you are convinced you're going through it, would you be troubled? Would you be soon shaken in mind? Absolutely. Do we go find a cave to hide in now, or do we wait a little longer? Sometimes we hear the news. Do we go hide now? And it's amazing, by the way. Can I say this? There is a rise of the... Of the of the of 
the, the mid-tribulation or the pre-wrath or you know different aspects of the rapture, uh, really that's not been traditional in, at least in Bible-believing uh, 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 theology, has not been traditional, at least in these last hundred years. And uh, there's a rise of it of, well, the church is going to go through tribulation. We talked in our Sunday nights, how this is a, a lot of the reason is because we've, we've confused Israel and the church. We've confused the word election. Those kinds of things, but um, but uh, there's a huge rise. And what, what? Think about this now. How many times Paul gives this comforting aspect with with uh, connected to this, right? Comfort one another. These words um, that uh, you know that we are not appointed unto wrath. He mentioned in the last epistle to these Thessalonians, uh, the the Lord's wrath, the day of wrath. And so so somehow this church had been tricked into thinking that the dreadful day of the Lord had come, that they're going to go through it, they're going to be a part of it. And uh, this day is coming, Paul says. That's why there's an urgency that you not be shaken, because the day is coming, but it's not yet. And the urgency of the message is based on the fact that the day is coming. So then he emphasizes their need to hold fast in the truth that they were taught, not being easily swayed by false information or by rumors. Look at verse 2 again. That you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, by letter from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. So this could be either a guy showed up, we don't know who it is, and uh, and basically said, hey, Paul sent me, I've got a letter from him, and he's given this new doctrine. Or, you know, th- this, is, this is based on something that has shaken them. So he basically warns them a couple categories. Hey, if someone comes saying they've been, you know, they're here by the Spirit, don't believe them. Any false prophet who claims they've received a message, quote, through the Spirit, I have this revelation from God, um, you know, uh, don't don't believe it. Hey, think about this now. He also might be talking about maybe even the spirit of the age. Hey, when the world's putting its philosophies in there, when the world's coming at you with these different things, don't start buying into it. I've held my ground for a long time. I'm rooted in the scriptures, and I keep hearing these philosophies thrown at me and thrown at me. Let me just say this. After a while, it gets tiring. Maybe there's some truth to their philosophy. Maybe there's some. You see what I'm saying? You start getting worn down. Hey, stay strong. Stay grounded because these things, they're going to uh, cause you to sway. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Casting down imaginations that comes to our mind. Imaginations and every high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Hey, if someone comes with a new revelation, a new thought by spirit, don't believe it. By word, they show up. Don't listen to any false teachers that might teach something contrary to what has been revealed in Scripture. Right? Joseph Smith. By the way, have you ever, you ever noticed the how many... How many cults exist today because of date setting? That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses exist. Seven-day Venice. Those are based on date setting. And then what happens when, when Christ doesn't come on the date that they said? They create a new doctrine to say why. Kind of interesting, right? I remember a few years back, Harold Camping, right? He had several dates that he, that he said, well, Lord's coming in this date. And then, no, I got it wrong, in this date. And then the big one was uh, 2012. I think it was going to be October 2012 or something like that. Uh, he's coming. And then uh, later he had a stroke. But, I mean, he was bringing, he was mustering in millions from, from followers. He had radio shows and, and all this stuff. I had heard from somebody. I've not seen the interview, but I heard there was an interview with him. Uh, you know, I, I believe he's passed away now, so he's straightened out on all this now. But, uh, but he had an interview before he died that um, basically he repented. And he said, no man knows the day or the hour. And, um, but, uh, but it's amazing. In our pride, we'll even start adding new doctrines. Well, well, I got it right. I got the math right. It's, but, but the Lord came spiritually. Or the Lord came, you know, we kind of, you know, no, let's just stick to the Scriptures if, by word. right? Uh, Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men and rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And he says, nor by letter from us. Don't accept a letter that says it was coming from us if it goes against God's revealed truth, is what he's telling them. We've already shown you something. We've already told you something led by the Spirit of God, and uh, and that's been established. It's been settled. So if anything else comes, don't believe it. Even if they try to say, oh, no, Paul signed off on this. He's warning them, listen, I've already given this to you under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not going to contradict itself. 
And I think you probably even take this a, a bit further. If my teaching suddenly shifts and I go off my rocker, don't believe it. Don't, don't contradict the word of God. Did you know a preacher can lose his mind? I'm not saying Paul did. Paul is faithful to the end, I believe. But um, he says, even a letter from us. Imagine a, a sturdy tree in a storm, right? It's got those deep roots, and it's standing sure. It, you know, the storm comes, and that thing, you know, it, it, it amazes me sometimes what some trees can endure in crazy, crazy storms. And, well, how is that even possible? The root structure. It's firmly planted. And listen, that's kind of the word picture God gives us that, that we as believers need to have. Sadly, many today are not rooted. They're not grounded in that uh, respect. That's why personal discipleship and Bible study, personal Bible study is so important. Ephesians 4, 14-15, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried out every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There are people lying in wait to deceive. Think about that. But speaking the truth in love may grow up together in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him. Folks, if that's not a picture of a strong tree, I don't know what is. When that root structure is strong, that tree is built up, and it is strong, it is established, built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding Therein with thanksgiving. He says, listen, as believers, once you've received Christ, start letting those roots go deep. Have it built upon something that you can grow up and, uh, and not get knocked over when a storm comes, when a bad philosophy comes, when, when people who are coming to deceive come along. And let me just say, the devil, he's known as a deceiver. It's interesting, when the Bible says in Revelation that the devil is cast in the pit for a thousand years, you know the reason it gives in that verse? It says that he should deceive the nations no more. Then the Bible says he's loosed for a little season. And you know what it says? To deceive the nations. That's what he does. That is his tactic. That is his goal. And so, so he tells them, look, guys, you're not there yet. You need to make sure you're grounded that you're, that you're establishing your faith, that you know what you believe, that you're not going to get swayed from a smooth talker, not going to get swayed because someone said they have a, you know, they heard from a spirit or, uh, or they've even gotten a letter from Paul. Establish it in the faith. So then he begins to warn them about the coming man, of the man of sin. Look at verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of the Lord, shall not come except they're, they're coming falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, the falling away, there's a lot of debate about this. Um, um, but, uh, but first, we're going to describe the arrival of the man of sin, or the Antichrist, as spoken of in the Scriptures. That day shall not come except. Uh, that tells me the day has not come yet at this writing time. That day's not going to come until or except uh, some things take place. The chapter started off with Paul begging them and urging them at, you know, that, at Christ's coming, that he is coming, that they should not be shaken or believe false teachers. Why would, why would Paul so urgently say, uh, don't be so shaken, don't be deceived, don't be, don't be troubled? Why? Because notice what it says there. Before this day happens, it says, except there should come a falling away first. Falling away first. Some, some believe that falling away is referencing the rapture. The problem is the word falling away is translated from the word apostasia. Anybody want to take a guess what apostasia means? We get the English word apostasy. Anybody know what apostasy means? False teaching. Right? Uh, uh, we get the word apostasy, right? That person is apostate. Now, now it's a word that's referenced in political realms. It's referenced in different areas. And so some people believe that it could be referring to the Antichrist himself. I believe this. This great falling away is going to be among, among churches, among believers. Those that have been deceived, there's going to be a great falling away. Some teach this, that we as believers, it's our job to usher in the Lord's kingdom. How do you think we're doing? 
Uh, I'd say we are further away than when the Lord started, <laughs> or at least in the first century, right? When they turned the world upside down. If it's our job, we're in big trouble. We have been derelict in our duty. Um, no, no, there's a great falling away in the world, in the church. There's a great falling away that has taken place. Um, the Bible teaches that there's going to be great apostasy prior to his coming. Great apostasy. Let me share this with you. What percentage of Christians hold Christian beliefs? Article here by, a, by a Stephen Rowland. If I proclaim to myself to be a Buddhist, and you ask me a few simple questions about my religion, in which I displayed an ignorance of the foundational tenets of Buddhism, would you say, uh, wouldn't you have a right to question whether I was really a true Buddhist? If I said I was a Muslim and had no idea what the five pillars of Islam were or had some, uh, uh, or, or had some um, patently untrue beliefs about the Prophet Muhammad himself, would you say my, uh, my self-designation as a Muslim be seriously suspect? I'm afraid a good percentage of Christians are now falling into that category. Back in April of 2018, the Pew Research Center did a survey which revealed that roughly 70% of Christians believed in the God of the Judeo-Christian Bible. The remaining 30% believed in a higher spiritual power. About 93% believe that God loves all people regardless of their faults. 87% believe God is omniscient, all-knowing. 78% believe that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. All three of these are foundational in Scripture. Later in October of that year, LifeWay Research pulled 3,000 Christians and discovered some really popular myths about many Christian beliefs. Fully, 69% disagreed with the small, uh, that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. The fact that all of us are sinners headed to an eternal damnation unless God forgives us and changes us through repentance and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, is a foundational tenet. 58% thought that worshiping, uh, worshiping alone or with family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Uh, it's actually a biblically uh, biblical command to attend church, not forsaking the selling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. Jesus stated that the world would recognize uh, his disciples by their love one for another. It's simply a, a, a truism that people who love each other like to spend time with each other. Well, here in 2022, this is when this article is written, um, I think we may have discovered part of what the problem is. Unfortunately, as many pastors themselves, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, that's where the other uh, study was conducted, uh, conducted a survey which revealed a shocking uh, uh, poultry. 37%, get this now, 37% of Christian pastors, 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. A series of questions about basic Christian beliefs resulted in that 37% figure, and it gets worse the further down the church hierarchy we go. 28% of Christian associate pastors, 13% of teaching pastors, 12% of youth pastors. Perhaps that's why some Christians don't attend church anymore. They might be learning more from reading the Bibles than listening to some pastors. Here are some of the, of the patently untrue beliefs expressed by many of these pastors a good person can earn salvation. Moral truth is subjective. Sexual relationship between two unmarried people who believe they love each other is morally acceptable. Socialism is preferable to capitalism. Reincarnation is a real possibility, and the Bible is ambiguous about abortion. Apparently, the popular belief of modern culture uh, are affecting those pastors more uh, than the other way around. The authors of that study also noted an interesting correlation between those pastors and their personal lives. These pastors were woefully deficient in daily Bible reading, prayer, worship, confession. That, that might seem odd for a pastor, but apparently it's because of the hectic jack-of-all-trades lifestyle that many of them lead. Often the pastors are running between handling the church finances, being an administrator, counseling member, visiting the sick, or counseling members visiting the sick, organizing in charity events, attending and facilitating conferences and meetings, conducting weddings and funerals, overseeing and mentoring church staff, and in smaller churches with few members, sometimes building maintenance, chores, and lawn mowing. Often the time necessary for personal prayer, Bible study, and worship is in short supply as a result. Perhaps that is why quite a few pastors are now, uh, now plagiarizing their sermons from online sources. 
I remember a journalist at Christian Today, Christianity Today who interviewed a good number of pastors with the question, how many hours per week does it take to adequately study and prepare for a high-quality Sunday morning sermon? Every one of them answered roughly 40 hours. That is a full-time job in itself. It's not negotiable. Perhaps if church members could take up the slack and kind of give some practical things there. and and uh, but, but it's very interesting to think about this, that there is no personal development happening in church among the leaders of churches. There's no, there's no time seeking the Lord. There's no developing that. And then, and then I, th- I think that is definitely a one-sided article because you think about how we've conditioned ourselves as a society and as a culture today. Everything's shortcutted. Right, we were talking about. Uh, uh, Emily was talking about in there earlier about how she's uh, just, you know, she's just on Facebook because she's an old person, and uh, she's not on all these other social media things. Well, some of those big social media things are things like you know TikTok and some of these others. They're just full of very, very short clips, and people are, I mean, people are making a living, millions of dollars. Kids are making millions of dollars because they're making these goofy, five second, ten second, fifteen second clips. It's like this is such a weird day we live in, right? So think about this. Think about blogs that go viral. Think about different things. Uh, they're all about these little just shortcut things. And what we've done is we've turned our sermons into that. And it's all about felt needs. And it's all about, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, let's give a, a nice, clean, little, cute outline of how to do this or how to do that. And it's, it's all these little short things. So what we do is we develop these sermonettes. And they become entertaining and become, you know, different things. And then they start speaking to the heart of the people because, quite frankly, I don't want a small crowd. I want a big crowd. So what is it the crowd wants? Ooh, that's a dangerous thing to go through. Now, now there's a there's a balance here on how we approach this. But, but listen, if we're just chasing to please the crowd, we have to ask the question, what does the crowd want? And so we poll and we ask all these questions and we start giving them certain things. So what we do is we have all these little sermonettes by these pastorettes who haven't really spent much time and uh, uh, preparing and studying. And, and listen, I've been guilty and I've, uh, I've even confessed among you all uh, some of the things that I've struggled with. And, um, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to you know, start again and try again and, and work at it. But, uh, but, but what ends up happening is this. The pastor's starving. And then he's feeding crumbs to the people who are starving. And now there's nothing to ground us and to secure us when philosophies are running wild. We have people in the highest offices in our land that can't even tell you what a woman is. That's pretty basic. I remember uh, when I was a kid, there was a movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in. And uh, Kindergarten Cop, remember that movie? Kindergarten Cop. And, uh, and his partner, he's a police officer, his partner shows up and there's this little kid and he kind of walks around and he's, and he's going around basically telling everyone the difference between a boy and a girl. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the lady said, it looks like you've taught them the basics. <laughs> it's funny how from then to now we've like forgot even the basics, right? Um, but, but that's now entering churches. If you do just a little, uh, I'll give you a little warning if you do this, uh, you might get shocked and there might be some inappropriate things, but just do a little search, progressive pastors. Find out what progressive pastors are saying. And that is a number in Christianity that is growing like you wouldn't believe. They stand up there and they've they've got their little clergy ribbon thing and they're all got rainbows. And they're all blaspheming God left and right. And every one of their sermon topics are woke issues. How God is for transgenderism, how God is for uh, uh, you know, gay marriage, all these different things. It's all falling apart. All I'm saying is that there is deception, there are deceivers. And so he's warning them with this urgency that there is going to be a falling away. When 37% of pastors believe the Bible. We've turned it into a profession. And we've turned it into to a mockery something that it was never intended to be. There's no fear of God. There's no reverence for the things of God. And there's no understanding of the Scriptures. Then he says that the man of sin may be revealed, the son of perdition. By the way, the title, son of perdition, was given to another man in the Bible. You know who that is? Judas. Now, some people believe Judas is going to be the Antichrist come back. I don't think there's any grounds for that. But, um, but look at verse 4. He starts to explain who the Antichrist is. And he'll oppose everything that is God and exalt himself above God. 
deceiving with his signs and wonders. He says this, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. So these are the things that are going to happen. They're going to accompany the day of the Lord. We'll talk about the timing of it next week, but we're going to describe a little bit about him. He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is God, or that is worshipped, or that he, that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he's actually going to go and sit in the temple of God. I believe that's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, about the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. He's going to go into the temple and, and want worship. Consider, think about a skilled illusionist who just dazzles the crowd with astonishment with his tricks. Like, wow, this guy, he's really got something going on. See, the Antichrist is going to use deception. He's going to use things that, that are just going to wow the people. He's going to appear as Messiah. What did Jesus warn? Uh, keep in mind, the Jews are still looking for Jesus. They're still looking for the Christ. What did Jesus warn? Many will come and say, lo, here is Christ, or there is Christ. Don't believe it. Why? Because Jesus was there. He was already talking it. But he's going to appear like Christ. He's going to do signs and wonders, Revelation 13, 13 through 14. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of all men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beasts, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which, they had, which had wounded by a sword and did live. This beast was going to die and raise again and uh, appear to fulfill prophecy in Isaiah and other places. And there's great danger in this falling away. He says, don't no, no man deceive you. There's a great deception. Highlights the great consequences of falling away due to deception. And let me just say, we see a great falling away today. We see amongst the religious crowd, we see amongst professing Christians, biblical illiteracy. I've shared with you, I've actually talked with several pastors over the years and asked them some of the simple questions. Do you know for certain that you're saved? How can a man know he's saved? And they can't, they can't answer it. Ordained ministers. We have great biblical literacy. You have great, great spiritual apathy. Eh, what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, we have, we have believers that think things are getting better and better and better. And that the Bible teaches that. Things will get better, by the way, just not progressively better. You're more of a suddenly better. And then we have great personal idolatry. We're setting ourselves up to know better than God. Because we are spiritually illiterate, where does that, what does that leave? It leaves a great void. So our own thinking and our own desires becomes God. And, and all we need to do is visit Romans 1 and see where that leads. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Change the glory of incorruptible God and made like like a, a, a corruptible, you know, four-footed beast and creatures and so forth. And they worship the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever, Amen. And, and then they start giving over to their own desires and their own passions. And they start and what they do? They set themselves up as God, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Personal idolatry. And all this gives away to the spiritual deception, the apostasy, the great falling away. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Awake to righteousness. Awake, wake up, he's saying, and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Romans 13, 11 to 14, And that knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for our now is our salvation nearer than we first believed. Christ is coming, in other words. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness. Why? All those things distract. Not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or fulfill the lust thereof. We're encouraged to be vigilant, discerning the falsehoods and staying committed to Christ. And the last thing I want to point out is really the foundation of truth. The Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above all that is God or is worshipped. The Bible tells us in Jude 4, For these are certain men crept in unaware, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and Jesus Christ. What are these people doing? They're, they're coming in under a spiritual falsehood. They're feigning spirituality, and they're, they're, they're teaching people to go away, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Think about the devil. Isaiah 14, what does the devil say? He, 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 he said, I will be like the Most High. That was, that's what the devil said. I will be like the Most High. That's what he was after. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? 
and he goes through this whole thing. You know, you, 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 you were lifted up with pride and, and all this stuff. He said, I will be like the Most High. So what does he do? The very first deception we see the devil do, he shows up in the Garden of Eden, and when he says to Eve, he says, well, you know the reason God said not to eat this fruit is because he knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open, and you shall be what? As gods. I will be like the Most High. You can be like the Most High. In fact, we're all like the Most High. And that's where we're at today. We're all little deities. We're all gods of our own world. Or our, you know, we, we have our own thinking, and, and it's always been his goal. Uh, let's, let's take it to the full extreme of humanism, that you, at the end of the day, are the determining factor of what is right, what is wrong, your own destiny, et cetera, et cetera. There is no God. In fact, if there is a God, it's just because he wants to hold back from me, wants to bring me down. And at the end of the day, we're all God. We're all little deities. Look at verse 4, the last part. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation seemed to have at least partial fulfillment in 167 B.C. That was during the intertestament time period when the Greeks were ruling. Uh, the Greek ruler named uh, Antiochus IV, he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. It was an interesting time period. They basically left Jerusalem to itself, and they had different battles, different things going on. And one day he goes, marches into Jerusalem. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. Now, for a Jew, that's a big deal. Sacrifices a pig on the altar. And then he went even further, and he slaughtered a great number of Jews and selling others into slavery. And then he issued a decree forbidding circumcision and requiring Jews to sacrifice to pagan gods and to eat pig meat. He made them eat pig meat. Then he sat there in the temple and demanded they worship him as God. We saw a glimpse of the abomination of desolation. Revelation 13, 14, and 15. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast and, uh, which had a wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and to make the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So he goes and sets himself up and says, everyone should bow down and worship. Let me just say this. We must make sure that we're establishing our foundation. Notice what he said there in verse 5. We'll pick up here next week. Remember ye not, when I was with you, I told you these things? Don't you remember, church, I told you these things? You're all troubled. You're all shaken in mind. I told you these things. Folks, we need to have a firm foundation. We need to be established. We need to understand, first of all, that we are saved. Do you know for certain, for a Bible reason, that you are saved? I'm thankful when I've given that challenge, maybe week after week after week, one of you eventually comes up to me and says, you know, that's been a getting to me. I, I don't know if I can show from the Bible why I'm saved. I, I feel saved. I feel like I, you know, I'm a part of the church and those kind of things, but I can't tell you biblically why. Hey, get that settled. Make sure that you know that you know and why you know. Because then you're not going to stress. You're not going to fret. But then understand, what is God's plan with that? What is God's plan for me today? What is God's plan for me in the future? Get those things established. Uh, grow in the faith. Ask those questions. Maybe it's time to start some discipleship and really get into these things. But listen, each of us need to study and know the Word of God, allowing that to shape and establish our worldview. Nick mentioned a uh, foundation this morning in Sunday school. Imagine having that, that foundation and building your house on that. Dave, I'm sure, can give story after story about some houses that had a faulty foundation. What, what, what does a faulty foundation do in Alaska? What happens below the foundation in Alaska in many areas? Permafrost, sinkholes, all this stuff. Some houses, every every winter to summer, it'll move six inches. Okay, it's like every time winter comes, my door is stuck closed. I can't, I don't even dare open it because I won't be able to close it again, right? But every summer I can open it, no problem. That's weird. What's happening? There's something underground. If that foundation isn't just right, it's going to destroy that home. And folks, that's what's happening to so many Christians today. The foundation is not right. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? We need to get back to that. So we see the urgency of standing firm, knowing what you believe, why you believe, and stand therein. And then the coming of the man of sin, we'll dive into that more, who he is, the timing of that, because this is important. What is he telling them? He says, don't let people deceive you that the day of the Lord's now, but it's coming soon. It is coming soon to prepare yourselves. 
and uh, talks about the great falling away and then our foundation for truth. And so we need to be discerning. We need to study God's word. We need to remain firmly rooted in God's word. There's going to be some smooth talking, false teachers. And we need to make sure we know what we believe, why we believe it. And I'm just, I'm burdened to not just share with us what to believe, but why. What does the Bible teach? And um, so I hope that was a blessing. Yeah, I know I went pretty deep there, but uh, um, we got to be preparing ourselves for where we're at today. For the day the Lord truly is at hand. And we're seeing it getting closer and closer every day.